Please open your Bibles this morning to the epistle of Paul to Titus, the third of the pastoral epistles from Paul to Titus. I want us to consider something that is hard for us to grasp. We are creatures of time. Everything we know has a beginning and an end. It's hard for us to imagine things occurring before time. It's, it's hard for us to imagine eternity in any respect. We cannot imagine things lasting forever. You buy a car, and I don't care how well you take care of it, it doesn't last forever. No appliance lasts forever, and we don't last forever. Those of us that are past the age of 30 realize it's been downhill for a while because we do not last forever. We are very much creatures of time, but the God of heaven is going to restore to us that immortality that Jesus Christ purchased for us. And we shall live forever and ever with Him. Your time here is very short, then you're gone. Makes eternity impossible for us to fathom. But what we want to do is we want to go back in time. We want to go back before there was time. Time, as we understand it, began with the creation of this world when there were 24-hour days. Before the creation of the heavens and the earth, there wasn't a day or a night. It was constant day in the presence of God. And it had endured forever. We want to visualize a timeline in our minds. Here we are in the year 2006. If we go to the left on that timeline, we go back a hundred years, and there wasn't even a car in America. If we go back to 1906, other than a couple, I'm rounding off some time periods, our great-grandparents were getting around on horseback or on foot or in buggies. Just a hundred years ago, things have changed greatly in the last hundred years. Now some of you have laptops and computers in your pocket. If we go back further to the left, we come 2,000 years ago and the Lord Jesus Christ was on this planet. Jesus of Nazareth, missed by all except a few, laid down His life to pay for our sins. If we continue to the left, we can go back 4,000 years and we see a man named Abraham who was the friend of God. God walked with him and talked with him while he was here on earth. If we go back 2,000 years before that, we come to 6,000 years ago, or 4,000 B.C., and that was the creation of the heavens and the earth. The Bible has within it a chronology that is easy to know that the earth is approximately 6,000 years old. There are no gaps in that chronology that would alter that fact. This earth is a young earth, regardless of what anyone else believes. They can talk about millions, billions, trillions, and gazillions. They can make up whatever term they want to. The earth has had a short life. And it's winding down, brethren. We are at the end of time. We are in the perilous times of the last days. But if we go back, we come 6,000 years ago when this earth was without light, covered with water. There was no dry land that appeared anywhere. It was just a ball of water hanging in space with darkness around it. But before that, some things happened that the Bible tells us about. How long ago can we say were the events that are described in the Bible as before the world began? That's a long time ago. 
It's over 6,000 years ago, but even that doesn't do it justice because it was done in eternity. How many accidents and disappointments do you think have happened in, in and since God's creation of the heavens and the earth? How many accidents do you think have surprised Him? By how many things do you think He is truly disappointed in His own purpose and counsel and will? We would say nothing at all has disappointed the Most High in the true sense of the word. Now it is true when His children disobey Him, He chastens them. And He is disappointed in them in that respect of their obedience, but He chastens that disobedience. And He governs that disobedience. Did God know Adam would sin? We know He did. We know He did. That some would stay rebellious against Him? God knew that. That He would send many to hell for their sins? Yes, of course God knew that. If He knew all this, why did He create? The Bible tells us very plainly in both Testaments. The Lord hath made all things for Himself. Yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. Revelation 4, that was Proverbs 16.4. Revelation 4.11, the New Testament tells us, Thou art worthy to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. Your purpose in this universe is for the praise and pleasure of God. He did not make creatures to see if they could find pleasure in the universe. He made creatures that would bring Him pleasure. And if you want to fulfill your will and be happiest, you will fulfill the purpose and pleasure of God by recognizing why you exist. You weren't asked. You weren't asked if you want to exist. God didn't ask you anything. Right. If I did not have the gift of faith and the Word of God, I would think that was the height of cruelty that I was not asked if I want to exist in this world or not. With some of the experiences I've had in life, I may have chosen not to have existed at all. But He didn't even offer me that choice. He made it for me. He brought my soul into existence without asking my permission. And when He brought my soul into existence, He did not ask me what kind of parents I would like. He did not ask me how tall I would have liked to have been. I'd have added six inches. But He didn't ask me. He didn't ask me how quick I want to be mentally or physically. I'd have added some speed on both counts. Wouldn't you? He didn't ask me what I wanted to look like when I looked in the mirror. Or when others looked at me. He didn't ask me what generation I was going to be born in. Whether it was a generation in the past that we would call the Dark Ages. Or whether it's the enlightened period of time that I've lived in for the last 49 years. He didn't ask me any of those things, and He didn't ask you any of those things. He is the God of heaven, and the Bible says He is the potter and we are the clay. Just like a man sits down at a spinning wheel and takes a gob of mud, and clay is nothing but mud, I don't care if you artists think that it's something special or not, it's mud. And He takes that mud and He fashions something from it. He can fashion anything He wants. He can fashion something ugly and He can fashion something beautiful. He can take what is ugly and throw it back into the bucket, fill it with water, and it turns to mush again. Because He is the potter, 
And the clay doesn't have any right to say anything about what the potter does to it. And God is the potter. And we are the clay. And the way He has made you, He has made you for His own honor and glory. He gets more glory out of me being 5'9 than 6'3. And so I give Him glory. Do you give Him glory this morning for all that you are and have? He made all those choices before the world began. This morning I'm addressing these words primarily to those that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you don't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you ought to believe on Him today. You ought to humble yourselves before Him. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth, and you will give an account for everything done in your life to Him very soon. And in that day, you'll wish you'd have paid closer attention to this sermon, along with every other sermon. Titus chapter 1 tells us this in the first four verses. Let's read them. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began, but hath in due times manifested His word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, mine own son, after the common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen and amen. These are words that are not often read or studied. Because it's in a pastoral epistle, many people rush over them quickly, and because they're at the front end of this epistle, we rush over them. But I want us to notice a few things from them. First of all, it says, according to the faith of God's elect. No one but the elect are ever going to have faith because faith is a gift of God. The Bible tells us in 2 Peter chapter 1 that we have obtained like precious faith. And that's because God gave it to us. The Bible tells us in Galatians chapter 5 that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. It's the fruit of the Spirit to be able to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and to believe the Bible and to believe God. Jesus said to those Jews that didn't believe on Him, He said, Because I tell you the truth, you believe not. John 8.45 If it were not for the grace of God granting us the gift of faith, we would not believe the truth of the gospel either. But the Bible starts right off in this particular place by telling us that it's the faith of God's elect. What was their faith in? Their faith was in a promise that God had made before the world began. We want to think about that for a few minutes today. We're going to have the Lord's Supper You know, in our second service today, we're going to have the Lord's Supper in our second service today, and we want to think about what a glorious supper that is, and how that that supper is to remember an event 2,000 years old, and that event 2,000 years ago occurred because God promised eternal life before the world began. We want to trace everything back to this little statement, before the world began. Because it exalts the love of God more than any other love you will ever know in your life. How long has the person that loves you the most loved you? 
How long will the person that loves you the most love you? You say, well, our, our love and our marriage is for eternity. And no, it isn't. As soon as you die, you're unmarried. Because the Bible says they neither marry nor are given in marriage in heaven. You say, well, I've got my parents. And my mama's in heaven and she still loves me. How does she love you? When did she start loving you? 20 years before you were born? I want to tell you about a God that loved us before the world began. Amen. He loved us with an everlasting love. You know, this passage tells us that Paul was chosen to bring forth and preach this message according to the faith of God's elect. And he was an apostle by the commandment of God, the Father. And that was committed to him. Notice that it also says in that first verse, and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness. I want you to know and understand something, and it's why we are so particular about what we preach and believe. We had better receive the truth, and we better preach a truth, a body of truth, that results in us living godly lives. There are those that say if you preach the doctrine of election, then you're preaching a doctrine of fatalism, and it doesn't matter how you live. That never happened in the Bible. When Paul preached the doctrine of election from many passages, and yet he was constantly preaching a doctrine which was according to godliness. The grace of God that brings us the doctrine of election and justification and redemption and sanctification and all the other aspects of our salvation teaches us something. And chapter 2 and verse 11 tells us that. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. And if you read the book of Titus, it is Paul's message to Titus that on the island of Crete, he had better press all the believers in that island to live godly lives. He is going to quote one of their own that says the Cretans are always liars. There are some national distinctions in the Bible. And the nation of Crete was not very respectable. Paul said that it's a true witness of their nation. They're always liars, evil beasts, and slow bellies. This is in chapter 1 of Titus. And Titus, therefore... You need to teach good works to those people. And so right off the beginning, in the first verse, Paul mentions the faith of God's elect leads to godliness. And we want to make sure that our doctrine is always leading to holy living. There is a move today among Christians, and they don't know it consciously, they know it unconsciously, that they have a form of godliness, a form of it, but no power in it. They're lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Second Timothy chapter 3, this same apostle told us these perilous times were coming in which Christians would no longer care about living a godly life. But this verse tells us that the faith of God's elect acknowledges a body of truth that leads to godliness. Amen. Jude warns us about men that take the grace of God and use it to justify lascivious lifestyles. Do you know what he says about them? They were before of old ordained to condemnation. Men that take the precious grace of God and use it to justify worldly or carnal or sinful living prove their damnation. They were ordained to condemnation. Jude 1 and verse 4 tells us that. Notice in that second verse it says that there is hope. 
The elect have hope. Not only do they have faith, but they have hope because their God made a promise that He would give eternal life. And when did He give that promise? Before the world began. And so in verse 2, we see that there is hope of eternal life. Men have been dying for 6,000 years. Our great-grandparents are dead. Most of our grandparents are dead. Some of our parents are dead. And they keep dying. We cannot sustain our lives. But there is eternal life. And it has been promised by the Creator God that put us on this earth to begin with. And when did He make that promise? He made it before the world began. And we want to think about that today. God cannot lie. Isn't that comforting? God cannot lie. So every word in this book is absolutely true. And upon this bedrock, upon this foundation, we rest our lives here and the hope of eternal life to come. We don't trust anything else. We don't trust GNC for eternal life. We don't trust the fountain of youth that Ponce de Leon couldn't find. We trust the Word of God. Because He promised eternal life and He cannot lie. Everyone else is going to lie to you for the most part. But God has never lied to you. He cannot lie. And He will not lie. Notice that in the third verse it says, But hath in due times manifested His word. God gave the word. I will give eternal life to my elect. He promised eternal life to His elect. But hath in due times. A due time is the time that God planned for that time to be. That's a due time. If it, was, if it came at a time other than what God planned for it, then it wouldn't be a due time. It's, but in due times, after the Old Testament, God's manifested His Word through preaching. That promise God made before the world began is now being revealed. That's what it means to make something manifest. I do this often because I want you to understand some of these words that you don't use in a week's time. What does the word manifest mean? A manifest is a list of what is in a ship's cargo hold that cannot be seen. That's what a manifest is. It's a list of everything that is out of sight so that someone can judge the character, the weight, the, the, uh, the type of cargo that a ship might have. When the Bible uses the word manifested in a place like this, it means to reveal something that was otherwise hidden. And this promise of eternal life burst forth on this earth 2,000 years ago when God chose and by His commandment sent forth His apostles to preach the gospel. And they preached the gospel, which is the good news that God promised eternal life before the world began and purchased that eternal life for us through the death of Jesus Christ, His Son, and how we ought to live in obedience to Him. That's the gospel. And it burst forth on this earth 2,000 years ago and thank the God of heaven that it began in Jerusalem, went into Judea, went into Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth, which includes the Piedmont of South Carolina. Thank you, Lord, Amen. that the gospel came to us to tell us that before the world began, you had the cure for sin. Before you even knew, there, before we knew there was going to be death because we weren't even around, God promised eternal life before there was even life and death. Because his whole, the whole purpose for human existence is the glory of God. From the, the, from the, from the get go. The whole thing is the glory of God. Before a man was even alive, before a man had even sinned, to earn the death that's the wages of sin, God had already promised eternal life. And that message 
is a mystery of the gospel that everyone, that no one knows unless they hear a preacher take the word of God and preach it to them. How shall they believe? Except they be taught. And how shall they preach? Except they be called and sent. And brethren, let's be thankful that the gospel has reached even us to tell us about this promise. Hath in due times manifested his word through preaching. And of course, the apostle Paul had a major commitment for that task. He was the apostle of the Gentiles, and that's why he wrote the majority of the New Testament, because the majority of the New Testament outside of the Gospels is for us Gentiles. He is our apostle. He said, be ye followers of me as I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And so we rejoice in the apostle Paul and God's commandment to make him an apostle to bring us this news of God's promise that he made before the world began. In verse 4 it says, Titus, mine own son, after the common faith. Do you realize that in Paul's day, it was common to believe these things? Today, it is no longer common. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason. The devil hates the truth. And men now hate sound doctrine. Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, the time will come when Christians will no longer endure sound doctrine, but shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears that would satisfy their own lusts, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and be turned unto fables. There's a reason why the doctrine of election, why what God did before the world began is not taught anymore, because men hate sound doctrine. They want fables instead. They want to be entertained by a musical show. They want rock and roll Jesus. They want to have a lock-in with Jesus. They want to have a punk Jesus. They don't want the Jesus of the Bible who is the potter and we are the clay. Our world has tried to get rid of the God of the Bible. They don't like the concept of a potter and clay. So we evolved into existence from monkeys, from primeval slime. We came into existence from an explosion of chaotic gases is how we're here. Because they cannot stand a creator God who would create them for his own pleasure. And the Christian world has followed right behind them just one step slower. They want fables and entertainment. Most families go to churches today and the first question they want to ask is, what programs do you have for the youth? Well, how about preaching for the youth? Because according to this, it says, God hath man- God in due times manifested His Word through preaching. You don't learn about the promise God made before the world began by playing basketball. Right. You don't learn about it by doing cutouts of Jesus and the disciples while eating graham crackers and milk. We are in here to hear the Word of God preached to us. Amen. There's 168 hours in a week, and all we get is a few together. And we better use every minute that we have together to confirm our faith and to stand firm together and exhort one another, lest any of us be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin and depart from the living God. So that's our purpose for being together and what we want to remind ourselves of. And we need to understand the reason this isn't preached is because this world, this Christian world, Christian America is fulfilling Paul's prophecy. They no longer will endure sound doctrine. And listen, if they had to sit through listening to me, they'd crucify me. 
as long as I preach, as boring as I am, as poorly as I tell you what the Bible has to say, they will not endure that. They want to be jumping and shouting and swaying and shaking. Let's do some shaking for Jesus. I can't find that in the Bible. Can't find it. Looking at this passage, let's think about it for just a minute before we go to another one. If God promised eternal life before the world began, then who needed such a promise? God must have looked ahead and seen sinners. Otherwise, He wouldn't have had to promise eternal life. He must have looked ahead and seen sinners who were under the condemnation of death. And we're told in the Bible the simple point and the simple rule, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin are death. But the gift of God is eternal life, which He promised to give that gift before the world began. So we ask ourselves, if God promised eternal life before the world began, then who needed it? Sinners needed it. He saw the first sin, Satan's, then our sin through Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And yes, you ate the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as much as Adam and Eve did. That is the doctrine of representation taught in the Bible. That is why between Adam and Moses, even babies died. Everyone died. Because we all sinned in Adam. Someone will say, but it's not fair. It's not fair if I don't get to make my choice. You, you had your choice. You had your choice in the most perfect representative God could possibly make. And that was Adam. In a sinless world, without a sinful wife, without sinful children, without a sinful PTA, NEA, or the United Nations. He only had one commandment to keep. He had everything made. And he chose to go against the God of heaven. You think you would do better? You're wrong. You're held accountable for Adam's transgression. God saw that transgression, and He saw the last one you've committed in the last 24 hours. He has seen them all, and He promised eternal life for those that would be under the condemnation of death. Thank you, Lord, for that promise. And He made it before the world began. If God promised eternal life before the world began, how could a holy God promise eternal life to men who deserve death? God is not a sugar daddy in the sky. He is a holy God and He is a just God. The Bible tells us He cannot acquit. You know, our nation acquits. That means they'll just blow a case out and say the person isn't guilty. God cannot do that. The Bible says He cannot acquit and He cannot clear the guilty. He must punish sin. He is just. When some, What does He say? The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The wages of sin is death, and He always pays His wages, and He pays them on time. So how could He do it? There is involved in that question the answer that He sent Jesus Christ, who would live a perfect life of righteousness, which would be applied to our account and be that adorning in which we'll stand before God, and He would die on the cross for every one of our sins, including Adam's, to free us from the first Adam's transgression that we might be justified by the second Adam. Amen. That's, how he would, that's how he could promise eternal life. He's planned to send his son to die for them. And that, therefore, the Bible says he can be just and a justifier because he has a substitute for us. Romans 3.26 says he can be just and a justifier because of Jesus Christ. 
He can't just say, I'm going to overlook your sins. He can't do that to any creature or being in the universe. He had to punish our sins in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is why we want to remember that death until He comes for us, because it's so important. If God promised eternal life before the world began, then to whom did He promise it? He couldn't have promised eternal life to all men, or all men would be saved, and we are not universalists. Sorry, we're not universalists. God's kept every promise He's ever made. God promised eternal life. To whom did He promise eternal life? He promised them to the ones mentioned in the first verse. The elect of God. What does it mean to be elected? It means to be chosen. God chose to save, and He promised eternal life to those He chose to save, and He gave those to the Lord Jesus Christ. And That's why Jesus Christ said that He was there on earth to lay down His life for His sheep. He was on earth to give eternal life to as many as God had given Him. So that's what we get out of that by asking the question, if God promised eternal life, but then we've got to answer the question, but, 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 but we weren't even there. We weren't even there. How could God promise eternal life to beings that weren't even there? Because He did it by covenant with the Lord Jesus Christ in His own will. It's called the everlasting covenant in the Bible. Amen. He promised it to Himself through the Lord Jesus Christ, even before we had existence. You say, well, how can He do that before we even have existence? Well, how could He even, how could he even know that there was death and condemnation in order to, for, to promise eternal life to, to undo it, unless that had already occurred in His covenant foreknowledge of what was going to happen in this world? If God promised eternal life before the world began, then why isn't that preached today? We've already answered it. They will no longer endure sound doctrine. If God promised eternal life before the world began, then why should any believer obey? You know, when people hear about the doctrine of election, they say, well, if God's already chosen those who's going to be saved, and He's let the others go in their sins, and they're going to go to hell, then it doesn't matter how I live. That's a very wicked spirit that would even think such a thought, but we'll answer it anyway. We'll answer it. The only way that we know that we are God's elect is by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and bringing forth the fruitfulness and the good works that prove our faith is legitimate. And that's what the Bible teaches from, from beginning to end. That the only ones that can know they have eternal life are not those that made a decision for Jesus. A decision for Jesus has never saved anyone. That is not proof of eternal life. The proof of eternal life, making your calling and election sure is adding to your faith. Faith is the first thing we have because God gives it to us. And I'm quoting from 2 Peter chapter 1. After God gives you faith, then we are to add to our faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge patience, and to patience temperance, and to temperance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. And the Bible says, If ye do these things, ye shall never fall. There is a horrible problem in America today called easy believism where, where people will come forward and make some little decision for Jesus and they're promised eternal life. But the Bible doesn't teach that. You have to back up that faith with holy living. Do you know how particular there... I've tried to tell you this in times past. They don't even want those people that come forward to make a decision to have to accept Jesus as Lord. It's called the Lordship Controversy. 
They, they are trying to narrow down what you have to believe for your decision to make it as little as possible. And so there's a whole great company that says you don't even have to believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life. All you have to do is accept Him as your Savior. Neither are true. Never did an apostle tell anybody anything like that. The, the, the New Testament is to press us to bring forth good works. If ye do these things, ye shall never fall. Wherefore, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Paul wrote the Thessalonians and he said in chapter 1 of the first epistle, he said, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. Now, how did he know their election of God? Because they had the work of faith and the labor of love, and the patience of hope. When a person has the work of faith, their faith results in activity. When they have the labor of love, they show that they have true love put in their hearts by the labor they put forth for other people, and they have the patience of hope. That is, they have true Christian hope that results in patience difficulties of this life. When a person has those, You can look at that person and say, they're the elect of God, and God promised them eternal life before the world began. Paul looked at the Thessalonians and said that. Why do we believe and obey? Because the only way you can ever know that you have eternal life is to believe and obey. That is how we lay hold of eternal life, and that is how we lay up and store a good foundation against the time to come. And those are not my words. Those are Paul's words in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. That was Titus chapter 1. Now let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Just back up one book to the second pastoral epistle. Paul wrote two pastors, three epistles, and this is the second one to Timothy. This was read to you this morning. Look what it says in verse 9. Who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus, and there's the words we want, before the world began. God's purpose and God's grace in saving Paul and Timothy was given to them Does it say that? It was given to us in Christ Jesus. That's what I meant by the covenant relationship we have in Christ Jesus. God saw each and every one of His elect in Jesus Christ before the world began. And His purpose was, by grace, to save every single one of them through Jesus Christ. And so we're told that right here in 2 Timothy 1.9. This is a wonderful verse to memorize. Who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works. What Paul and Timothy did didn't have anything to do with it. It's what God did. But according to His purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Just like in Titus, look what it says next. But is now made manifest. There's that manifestation of it again. The revelation of it. The opening up of the secret. Anything that happened before the world began is called the secret will of God in the Bible. Deuteronomy 29.29 tells us that God has His secret things and God has His revealed things. The secret things are what God does in His own counsel and it's His own will. 
The only part of it we know is what He actually does in time, and we see it unfolding before our eyes. The revealed things are what are written in the Bible, and that's what we're supposed to do. We don't spend our time wondering about what He did in eternity. What we're doing right now is reading what He did in eternity. That's not wondering about it. We don't know God's secret will until it happens. But we do know His revealed will. And notice in verse 10, what happened in verse 9, God's purpose to save Paul and Timothy and us along with them, according to His own purpose and grace that was given them in Christ Jesus before the world began, that was revealed or made known or discovered or explained by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. When the Son of God appeared on earth, what was He here for? He was here on this earth to lay down His life, to purchase eternal life for the elect, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality What is immortality? That's eternal life. God promised eternal life before the world began. And here we read that Jesus Christ in time purchased that eternal life by bringing life and immortality. Immortality is eternal life. And when the gospel is preached, it brings life and immortality to light through the gospel. Preaching the gospel does not bring life and immortality to anyone. Life and immortality were purchased by Jesus Christ on the cross legally, but they were promised by the God of heaven through grace and His purpose before the world began. The gospel just brings it to light. When the gospel is preached, those that are God's elect hear it. They, they hear it and it's, it's a beautiful sound to them. They love it because they've been born again by God and they rejoice in that doctrine. The wicked just think that it's foolishness. They want to kill the preacher most of the time. They killed the Lord Jesus Christ. They killed His apostles. Notice, it tells us very plainly in verse 10 that the gospel brings life and immortality to light because it makes it manifest of what God promised before the world began and what Jesus bought on the cross of Calvary. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. What What did God do before the world began? What happened for you before the world began? How long has the person that's known you the longest known you? Your mother? She knew you the longest. She felt you first. She knew she had you first. And she loved you. not very long. I'm going to tell you about a God that's loved you from before the foundation of the world because He saw you in Jesus Christ. He knew you by name. He had already written your name in the book of life. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Notice the constant repetition of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ because all of our spiritual blessings are in Him. How did we get all those spiritual blessings? Or how did we get in Christ Jesus where all those spiritual blessings are ours? Verse 4 tells us, according. It tells us exactly how we got in Jesus Christ where all those spiritual blessings are located. According as He, which is God, hath chosen us in Him, that is Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. He looked down through time and he saw that we were all sinners. The Bible tells us God did look down through time. 
Psalm 14, Psalm 53, they both tell us in the first three verses that the Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek after God. How many did he find seeking after God? None. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. There is none righteous. No, not one. He did not find one seeking Him. We were sinners condemned by Adam's sin. And look at this. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy. He washed away those sins through Jesus Christ and He he made us holy so that we would be fit for heaven. Holy and without blame. There was nothing left to blame. Didn't a brother read to us from Romans chapter 8? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Because there's nothing left to blame them with. In the sight of God, they're absolutely holy and fit for heaven. This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is good news. Not what you can do to make yourself holy, because that will never make you holy enough to get into heaven. Not because I'm bringing life and immortality for you, because I'm not. I'm only bringing it to light by telling you how God designed it, promised it, and then purchased it through the death of Jesus Christ our Lord. In love. The last two words of verse 4 are in love. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. If God had not chosen to make us holy in Christ and to make us without blame in Christ, God could not love us. God cannot love a sinful object. It is utterly impossible. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Psalm 5, 5. Psalm 11, 5. God abhors all those that love wickedness. God only can love holy objects because He is holy. He can't even look approvingly on sinful objects. But see, in Christ Jesus, from before the world began, we were in Christ, and He saw us as holy and without blame. And He was able to set His love upon us. And so He could say, I have loved you with an everlasting love in Jeremiah 31.3. This is Ephesians 1.3 and 4. Notice it told us when this all got started. Before the foundation of the world in the middle of verse 4. What else happened back then? Well, along with that choice, verse 5 tells us, having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. What will, what will, whose will, is the deciding factor in God's predestinating purpose? God's will. It was the good pleasure of His will. He owed, so, he owed salvation to none. He would have been perfectly just and holy to have sent the whole race to hell like He did the whole race of fallen angels. But instead... He predestinated us to be His children. If you're ever a child of God, it's because God set your destiny beforehand. Which is what the word predestination means. Praise the God of heaven that I'm His Son and that He has seen me as His Son in Jesus Christ His Son from before the world began. That's a long ways left on the timeline. Thank you, Lord. And it said, here's why He did it. Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace. No one's going to be in heaven praising anyone else for getting them there. No one's going to be in heaven taking any honor or credit for them getting themselves there. All the honor belongs to the God that promised eternal life and to the Son of God that purchased eternal life. It is all wrapped up in God. 
Therefore, let him that glorieth glory in the Lord, and not in man, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. God made us accepted to Himself in the Beloved, which is Jesus Christ. God, having put us in Christ by His choice before the world began, made us acceptable to Himself, because in Christ we were holy and without blame as His children. The world teaches you have to accept God. The Bible teaches you can't find There's not a single verse that says that in the Bible. Not a single verse that says that in the Bible. They do not want a potter, and they do not want to be the clay. They want to be the potter and God the clay. I will tell you where I want to go, and I will tell you what I want to do. But the Bible says God made us accepted, because what counts when we stand before God is not that we've accepted Him, but has He accepted us? And notice how He makes us acceptable. He chooses us in Christ and makes us acceptable in the Beloved. And you know who the Beloved is, because He thundered from heaven several times and said, This is my Beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is the doctrine of the Bible, and it tells us that before the world began, God knew us and loved us this much. We could go on down through Ephesians chapter 1. It says in verse 7, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, and all of it according to the riches of His grace. It says He's abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. What God has done toward us and what He's revealed toward us is the highest level of wisdom the universe has ever heard. That God would devise such a plan and save men from their sins. Unbelievable. It is so glorious. It is abounding in wisdom and prudence. It's the mystery of His will, verse 9, but it is no longer a mystery to us because the Gospel reveals it to us. It makes it manifest, as we've read in the previous two places. And then it says, in the dispensation of the fullness of times, when He wraps everything up, He's going to get all of us together in one body. All of the elect will be in heaven. Not one will be lost. Jesus said, I will lose none of them. John chapter 6 I will lose none of them that thou hast given me, but I will raise them all up again at the last day. We'll all be in one body in heaven. And it says in verse 11 that heaven is our inheritance. We have an inheritance coming and it's heaven itself. And we were predestinated to that inheritance after the counsel of his own will, because he works all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory. Verse 12, that is salvation. That is the good news of the gospel. And we're going to spend the rest of eternity to the praise of His glory. We're going to be in one body in heaven. And we're going to be thanking Him for promising us eternal life Amen. before the world began. And for Jesus Christ purchasing it for us. And that's what we're going to have the Lord's Supper for a little later today. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. If God promised eternal life before the world began, and if God cannot promise eternal life to a sinner that is condemned to die without a substitute, then that substitute must have been appointed in heaven, must have been appointed before the world began as well. Does that make sense? If God promised eternal life before the world began, because He cannot simply acquit or clear sinners, He needs a substitute. Look what we can find in 1 Peter chapter 1. It says that we were redeemed in verse 19. 
We were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. That's how we're without blemish and without spot because the without blemish and without spot lamb of God was killed in our place. Verse 20, who verily, of a truth, this is a true fact of history, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. God had chosen Jesus Christ to be the one that would come and redeem us. He foreordained him to come and die, but was manifest in these last times, the last times of the gospel era, because these are the last times on earth. When the gospel era is wrapped up, it's all over. We will all be in heaven with God forever and ever. Here it tells us again, before the foundation of the world, God had set Jesus Christ to be our representative. Look at Revelation 17.8. Revelation 17.8. Did God know what your parents were going to call you before the world began? Was that hard for Him to figure out? Revelation 17.8. Some of you young people went and visited another Baptist church last Sunday evening, and I appreciate the emails that I got from you telling me that you sang a song that I have told you about before, but because you go to this church, you've never heard it. What do you think that was? There's a new name written down in glory. Well, I can promise you one thing. There are no new names written down in glory. The body of God's elect is not being added to or taken away from every day. God chose His elect before the foundation of the world. Before the world began... He had already set his love on all the specific people that Jesus Christ was going to come and die for and redeem from their sins. We're just about to prove that from the Bible. There's no new names written down in glory. That is a false idea that God is sitting in heaven with a book sitting on his knee just waiting for you to do something so that he can write your name down. No, God has already done everything to cover everyone that is written down in the book of life. Notice what it says. Revelation 17 and verse 8. Now it's a long verse. So just hang on while we work our way through it. We want what's at the end of it. The beast that thou sawest was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And all they that dwell on the earth shall wonder, whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. These men that worship the beast, and right now we don't want to talk about what the beast is. Right now we want to talk about what this verse is teaching us about the book of life. These men that worship the beast are not God's elect. These are reprobates. That means those that are rejected. Reprobate is a Bible word. It's not my word. You can read about it in 2 Corinthians 13, among other places. These are the reprobates, and they were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world because we were written in the book of life from the foundation of the world because that's when God chose us in Christ Jesus. Now let's come back to 13.8 and learn a little bit more about the book of life. The prepositional phrase from the foundation of the world is modifying the verb written. Their names were not written from the foundation of the world in the book of life. You, this book, this book of Revelation. Everyone today wants the book of Revelation because they want it as a book of speculation. 
The book of Revelation was written as a book of comfort for Christians that have lived for the last 2,000 years that Jesus Christ was going to be ultimately and totally victorious over all the enemies of his churches. They used this book as comfort for the last 2,000 years because they knew that though they might be martyrs, they can read about themselves in Revelation chapter 6 that though they're under the altar of God and they're asking God how long, God is telling them, wait just a little bit longer and then I will judge your enemies. It is a book of comfort. And so how is that verse comforting? Their names are in the book of life, and God is telling them, everyone that you witness following the beast and are putting you to death and burning you to death at the stake and feeding you to lions or however else they killed the Christians, they were not written in the book of life. You are written in the book of life, and you know there's a great difference that I have made in your life that I have not made in theirs. Do not fear your enemies. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have not loved them. 13.8 And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship Him. That is the beast. Whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. This verse confuses some people. If you read a lot of theologians, they'll say that the Lamb slain was slain from the foundation of the world because they just connect this in order rather than applying the prepositional phrases to the verbs to which they apply. The the prepositional phrase from the foundation of the world is not modifying the lamb slain. The lamb was not slain before the world began. The lamb was not slain from before the foundation of the world. From the foundation of the world is a prepositional phrase modifying modifying the verb written again, just like it did in 17.8. Of the lamb slain is just telling us a little bit more about the book of life. It's Jesus Christ's book because He's the one that was slain and shed His blood to redeem everyone that was in that book. And when were their names written there? From the foundation of the world. There's There's no new name written down in glory. There's only old names that God has loved with an everlasting love. And it's those that will be saved with an everlasting salvation through the everlasting covenant of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, did more things happen before the foundation of the world? Look what we've learned so far. God promised eternal life. God set up the Lord Jesus Christ to come for us and live a perfect life and die a substitutionary death. God chose us in Jesus Christ. God showed His purpose and grace before the world began. He wrote our names in the book of life before the world began. What else did He do? Look at Matthew 25, 34. The sheep are on the right hand of the Lord Jesus Christ and the goats are on His left hand in this parable. It says in verse 34, Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Do you know what God was doing before He made the heavens and the earth? Do you know what he was doing before he made the North American continent? Before dry land appeared out of those dark waters? Do you know what God was doing? He was preparing an eternal city for us. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. What's described in here? If you read the rest of Matthew chapter 25, is it describing making decisions for Jesus or accepting Jesus? What does it describe? It, It describes the labor of love. It says, you visited me when I was sick. You fed me when I was hungry. You comforted me. You came to me when I was in prison. 
and the righteous are going to say, the righteous are going to say, we didn't, we didn't do anything. We didn't do any of that. When did we ever do any of that, Lord? And the Lord's going to say, as long as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Notice it's the labor of love that is here, the great difference. And the labor of love is something that only the elect do. Because without the grace of God in our lives, we wouldn't love anyone but ourselves. But, oh, we, we know how to do that right well. That's why Jesus said we need to learn to love our neighbors as ourselves. We do such a good job with ourselves. If we ever loved our neighbors like we do ourselves, oh, they'd be well taken care of. Right. This is Matthew 25. Our kingdom has been prepared for us from the foundation of the world. And what makes the difference? Why does anyone love another person? Not for what they're going to get out of that person. But why does anyone love another person? Because they're God's child. That is a work of grace. Oh, there's lots of young men that have promised eternal love to young girls, but they're always looking for something, and I'll leave that to your understanding. But when do we love sacrificially another person just because they're God's? They're different from us in many, many ways. Maybe all ways but we love them because they're the Lord's. That is the labor of love, and that is only true of God's elect. But notice, those elect have a kingdom prepared for them from the foundation of the world. Acts 15. Acts 15. I'm sorry that you have to endure sound doctrine. Do you know how long Paul preached? When Paul started at supper time... When did he have to take up that poor young man that fell to the window because he went to sleep? Around midnight. And then once he got there, he raised that man from the dead. He fell down from a third story window. They went down to the sidewalk. There's a crumpled teenager that just hadn't got enough sleep the night before or hadn't had enough Mountain Dew before he got to church. He's down in the sidewalk. Paul raises him from the dead, gets him back up into the assembly. Then how long does he preach? Till daybreak. Oh, I'm easy. Only a few more minutes. I'm easy. That's our beloved brother Paul. And I hope that we love the truth enough that if we'd have had a chance to have Paul preach to us, we'd have wanted him to go till daybreak. Acts chapter 15, this is the council of Jerusalem. They are addressing the issue of what do these Gentiles need to do relative to the law of Moses. Peter tells how he went to Cornelius and baptized Cornelius. Paul tells about the things God had done with him among the Gentiles. James settles the issue by quoting from Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, saying God had prophesied this event a long time ago by saying that He was going to build up again the tabernacle of David. We are the true Israel of God. Believers in the New Testament, the saints of God are the true Israel of God. Jerusalem is a heavenly city now. It is not that earthly city over there on that strip of sand next to the Mediterranean Sea. We are the true Jew. The Bible says He is not a Jew which is one outwardly. He is a Jew which is one inwardly. We're the Israel of God. And here in this place, James says, what we're discussing right now about these converted Gentiles, Amos prophesied about it. He said... God was going to take from the Gentile nations and build up again the tabernacle of David. He was going to build up again the nation of Israel under David their king. But David their king was now the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And he gets down to verse 18 and he says this, Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. And that settles it. At that period, that settles the discussion, and James tells them what they ought to do. Wherefore, let's just tell them to keep these four things. These four little things, let's tell them that. The rest of the law they can forget about as far as the ceremonial law that applied to the Jews. And he settles it by saying, Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. God has planned this. See, that 18th verse isn't a quote. That 18th verse is an axiom of apostolic religion. Do you know what an axiom is? An absolute rule that you can depend on. Right. That 18th verse is an absolute rule that you can depend on, and it is the part of the faith of God's elect that everything God does in time, He's planned from the very beginning. And, and James just settled it by saying, Known unto God are all His works from the beginning of the world. You know, we, we thought it was us Jews for 2,000 years, but God, I just showed you the fulfillment of a prophecy from Amos, and God's planned this all along, so brethren, let's humble ourselves before it. These Gentiles have been saved by the grace of God as well as we. Praise the Lord, brethren, because if it wasn't for Acts chapter 15, and God having planned this from the very beginning of the world, you wouldn't be converted today. This is the grace of God. And He planned these things from the beginning. He knew I wasn't a Jew. He knew I was a Gentile when He wrote my name in the book of life before the world began. He raised up the Apostle Paul to preach and to ordain Timothy. And He raised up Timothy to ordain another man. And that other man ordained another man. And that, uh, that man ordained other men that preached the Gospel to me and baptized me. Right. And He's done the same for you. Amen. And we are a small, small, little Society of believers in the earth that come from the Apostle Paul and his ordaining and baptizing ministry, but God planned it from before the world began. Praise His great and glorious name. Let's go to one last passage, Second Thessalonians chapter 2. It was also read to you twice today because I never want you to forget it. Oh, how thankful we should be. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Those that followed the beast... And worship the beast. What did the Lord say about them in Revelation? They were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. And what do we read about them here? It was read in your hearing twice today. Verse 11, 2 Thessalonians 2. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. What is the lie? The lie of the beast. The lie of false religious system. And God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But, thank you Lord for the buts of the Bible, but we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord. Do you think the ones in verses 11 and 12 were beloved of the Lord? You're wrong. Verses 11 and 12 are those that God sent strong delusion that they would believe a lie and be damned. Paul's making a distinction, but you Thessalonians, we're bound to give thanks always, not just once, not just on Sunday, not once a year, but always. Brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Now notice, here Jesus Christ is not mentioned. 
Because the apostle is not dealing with legal salvation right here. He's dealing with practical salvation from the man of sin, from the beast. He doesn't mention Jesus Christ. He progresses further into our sanctification of the Spirit, which is when the Holy Spirit regenerates us, washes us, cleanses us through regeneration and gives us that new heart. And then we hear the truth. We hear the truth and we believe it because we were sanctified by the Spirit first. And that truth saves us from the lies and deception of false religion. This is the truth of God's Word, and it was chosen for us from the very beginning. Or in other words, before the world began. And we are bound. We have a duty this day to thank the God of heaven that before the world began, He promised us eternal life, and He wrote our names in the book of life, and He sent Jesus Christ for ordaining Him to come for us that He would lay down His life and save us from our sins. Through sanctification and belief of the truth, whereunto He called you by our gospel, Paul and Timothy and the other preachers of the New Testament, to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we don't get the glory through the truth. We hear about the glory. We rejoice in the glory. We praise His glory through the truth. We lay hold of His glory and where we're going to spend eternity through the truth of the gospel. And we need to keep going just very quickly. Therefore, if God chose us and if God saved us, that we would be delivered from lies. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Everything the apostles have taught us, we want to stand fast and hold it. That's why we're so different in this church. That's why I can't find a Christian flag over here. We had one when we bought the building. And we sold it. Because there is no Christian flag in New Testament religion. So we don't have one. We don't have musical instruments in a New Testament church because when we read through the New Testament, there is no mention of playing at any time, anywhere. It's singing. And we're to sing with the understanding. You cannot play with the understanding. Noise that comes out of a piano has no understanding and communicates no understanding. We are to sing. And so we're doing the things the apostles taught us. The reason why I'm a stickler about your attendance. And if you're sick or you're in business or you're on vacation, we understand. Have a good time. But we're here the rest of the time because that's apostolic tradition. Paul said, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. You know, every other church in Greenville our size would only have 20 here today because only a quarter of them show up on any given Sunday. Saddleback Community Church, Rick Warren's great megachurch out in California. They have 80,000 members, but they can only get 20,000 there for any service. That's forsaking the assembly by three-quarters of the whole body. What if I only had a quarter of my body up here this morning? That would be my left leg. That wouldn't be a body. Why are we doing all those things? Children, you understand why we do them. The Bible teaches us to do them. And because God saved us from the very beginning and showed us the truth and sanctified us by His Holy Spirit, therefore, verse 15, when you see a therefore in the Bible, it's drawing a conclusion Brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught. And that's what we want to do. Lord, help us do that. Lord, help us be faithful. How long has God known you? From before the world began. How long has... That's very different. You know, the Bible says how long... We've got to ask, ask and answer the question, how long has God known you? And we say from before the world began. 
But what will Jesus say to the wicked in the great day of judgment? I never never knew you. What? How do I tell you other than to say that? The grace of God. I never knew you. I have always known you from before the world began. How long has God loved you? He's loved you with an everlasting love. Can you be separated from that love? No, we had Romans 8 read in our hearing that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers, which means the devil and his angels, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Everyone that God loves will be in heaven absolutely because there is nothing in heaven or in earth or in hell that can separate them from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He promised them eternal life and He will keep His promise. How long ago did God covenant for your salvation? In eternity because it's called the everlasting covenant. How can I know that I'm one of God's elect? We should all want to ask that question. We should ask that question. How, do we, how can I know that I'm one of God's elect? I've already been over that from Second Peter chapter 1. Here's how you make your election sure. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that gift and that ability to see and believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God and died on the cross for our sins is the gift of faith that God gives. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and then add to that faith virtue. Be a good person by God's definition according to the Bible. And add to that virtue, knowledge. You humble yourself to the Word of God and learn the things that He wants you to know about life and pleasing Him. Faith, virtue, knowledge, patience, temperance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and charity. Those eight things. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election... Sure, the way we know that we're elect is by doing those eight things. That's far more than any little easy believism. That's far more than even accepting Jesus' lordship. That is keeping the commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ, our King and our Savior. Paul could say of the Thessalonians, knowing, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. Because he saw their work of faith, their labor of love, and their patience of hope. May those three things be true of our lives. You can know you're one of God's elect. See, I can't promise you heaven just because you make some little decision because the Bible doesn't tell me I can do that. The Bible tells us, ye see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Faith by itself is dead. It's no more than what the devils have. The devils believe and tremble about the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. They know that Jesus Christ has defeated them and is going to torment them forever and ever. They tremble. When they're in his presence. But that belief doesn't help them a bit. And in James chapter 2, the apostle said it doesn't help us a bit either if it doesn't have works backing it up. That's how we make our election sure. Though he did all that for us before the world began, he asks us now, while we have our few years on earth, to live like we are the sons of God before the rest of the world. May the Lord bless us to do that. May you commit yourselves to do that. You have had an eternal destiny from before the world began. God set his affection on you and sent his son to die for you from before the world began. Can you give the few years you have in this life for him who loved us and gave himself for us? This is the gospel. 
Do you love him who sent his son to die for you and him who promised eternal life to you? Put your name in the book of life and has done everything for you that you would realize all spiritual blessings and he'll not lose a single one. Trust him today. Run to him. Live for him. As we walk out of this assembly this morning, live for him. Love him from your heart. Sing his praise. Delight in him. Acquaint now thyself with him and be at peace. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen.